the main reading that we've chosen this morning is the Gospel lectionary from Mark chapter 10. But one of the other passages available is Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 12 to 16. And I'm going to read part of it before and then part of it after. So let's prepare for what God might say to us as we listen to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In our story, Jesus is on his way, on his way to Jerusalem. And we're told that a man comes hurrying up to Jesus and falls at Jesus' feet. The, The story is commonly headed, the rich young ruler. But actually Mark, in his account, only tells us that he is a rich man. It is Matthew that suggests youth and it is Luke that tells us that he's a ruler. A rich man comes to Jesus. He comes with haste. He falls at Jesus' feet. Some commentators suggest that, that the man falls with great reverence. That's the way the message translation puts it. But I suspect that he falls at Jesus' feet even as he runs with haste because we sense real desperation. Born of a deep-seated longing arising out of an acute sense of dissatisfaction with life as it was. This man, I sense, is running and falling at Jesus' feet because he is in earnest and he wants to know how to fill the gap that he feels in his heart. It's curious that as we note Mark's account, the story that precedes this is of the disciples shooing away people bringing children to Jesus. Little children being prevented from coming to Jesus and Jesus' response is to rebuke the disciples and say, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them for such as these belongs to the kingdom of God. They, They are inheritors of the kingdom. These little ones without rights, without recognition, without status, without any power, without any great position, certainly with no wealth, Does not the Bible say, naked we come into this world from our mother's womb and naked we shall leave it? So there's a contrast set up, if we will see it, between a man who has position and possessions and power and little ones 
who have nothing. No voice, nothing of value to their name, and yet Jesus pointedly says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they enter like a little child. Just gives us a clue for where this story might just head. Encounters with Jesus always begin with a person's felt need. Everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus starts with a desire for something more than they have already. It starts with a hunger. Do you recollect that, recollect that in your own life experience? That you were searching and longing, perhaps scratching around for something more to life than what you presently had by way of enjoyment or endurance. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who know their need of God. And this man comes in haste and falls, I sense, in desperation. And he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus holds out on giving the answer and challenges the assumption, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. The one God. There's only one who is good. The one God of Israel. But then proceeds to give a summary, a digest of the commandments. But do you notice how selective Jesus is? Jesus misses the first four commandments entirely. Begins at the sixth and follows through to the ninth, then returns to the fifth and misses out the tenth. What's Jesus doing? Is he just giving a representative and random sample? I think not. Because he misses out the first four that all have to do with your relating to God. He then gives a summary of the ethical commands that relate neighbour to neighbour, community relations. And then, the one that's also missed out is the tenths, do not covet. He adds an extra one in, don't defraud. The man, the young man maybe, says, all these I have kept since I was a young man. Since a boy. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't cheat. (laughs) His life consisted of what he didn't do. There is more to life than a negative, narrow, self-contained existence. Notice that Jesus never mocks this man, never doubts or challenges his integrity or the authenticity or the veracity of his claims. There's no hint or suggestion of arrogance or pride being the issue. It's not as though this man comes and says, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. No, this man is on his knees. Because in seeing Jesus, 
he sees the one who is good and he sees his need could be met. I suggest that Jesus giving the selective amnesia of missing out the first four commandments, missing out the tenth, adding an interpretation of the eighth and ninth, is cutting like a surgeon's knife right through to the heart of this man. He's inviting this man to radically rethink the basis upon which he lives and moves and has his being. He's actually saying, you must throw all idols aside. You must no longer covet more. You must give up all, relinquish it, and then, Jesus says, come and follow me. Hang on. In one breath, Jesus has challenged the man's honouring of Jesus. What must I do, good teacher, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in answering that first honouring statement, points the man to God. Now, he's saying, come, follow me. Does not the Bible say, he who has seen me, Jesus, has seen the Father? There is one way, Jesus. We see a unique statement in Mark's Gospel here. This is the only occasion where we are told by Mark of Jesus loving someone. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. The word for look means to look with scrutiny. To look beyond the veneer. To look deep inside. To even look straight through him. Jesus looks this man hard in the eye. He loves him. He sees the core of his unseen being. He offers not sentimentality, not superficial admiration. He sees something in this man and he speaks tenderly and truthfully to him. One suggestion is this moment in this man's life is a gut-wrenching moment. Picture, if you will, you are confronted with a man with a gun. A loaded gun. The gun has bullets, but you realize that that man does not have the gun pointed at you. He's about to point it at his own head. What's your priority in that moment? Will you take your heels and run? Or will you have the courage to somehow take that lethal weapon out of his hand, lay it aside, and hope, God grace permitting, give that man a reason to live. A true reason to live. A sustainable reason to live. Jesus, in looking at this man, this rich man, realizes that he has a toxin running through his system that will condemn him unless 
he renounces it. Unless he comes to the point where his life no longer is defined by riches. What defines your life? Is it a particular relationship? Is it education? Is it ambition? Is it riches? In this case the idea is of landed possession and money. What grips you? Jesus elsewhere says, where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart is. This man must become like a vulnerable child. He must be stripped of all earthly security. He must possess nothing and be possessed by nothing except a first love and a loyalty and an allegiance to Jesus. The man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life as though it were future, demands an action and a choice now. Wholehearted discipleship cannot take place until the ties to a man's possessions are broken. Ties so intense and so enslaving in this man's case that he can only hang his head and walk away grieving. He doesn't walk away angry. He doesn't walk away appalled. He doesn't walk away outraged. He walks away sad. Why? Because he knows that what Jesus has said to him is true. If everything that you owned was in a moment stripped away, would that be the end of your life? If the most vital relationship in your existence suddenly was wrenched from you, would that be the end of your life? For some here, it's been tested in the immediacy of this moment. And I have the privilege of witnessing men and women, young and old, for whom the center of gravity is Jesus Christ and for whom the life storms and the anguish and the upsets and the uncertainties will not shake you from that core conviction. I see that's true in grace because I saw that was true in Jim. Saw it was true in Alison. This man recognizes the validity of Jesus' demand, but he finds it impossible because he is so attached to his possessions. His possessions tragically possess him. Little children, vulnerable, could run and skip and muck around Jesus' feet. They didn't carry the weight of care. At this point in the story, Jesus talks to the disciples. Do you know what he calls them? 
children. Children. In our growing up, have we lost something? In our maturity, have we missed something? See, this man's problem is identified as riches, and it's not riches per se. It's riches taking priority over and above a relationship with God through Jesus. Because Jesus makes a promise. If you let this go, <laughs> I promise you that in this life you will have, does it say a hundredfold? You'll have houses and family and mothers and brothers and sisters and, and persecutions. God doesn't have a problem with blessing people. He has a problem, a heart cry problem, when people take the blessing and forget the God of the blessing. When people take the life bounty, but then walk in forgetfulness of the good God who gave that life bounty. See, anything or for that matter, anyone that claims a higher loyalty from you becomes your ultimate concern and prevents you from an uninhibited following of Jesus, not only wealth, ambition, education, religion, it needs to be relinquished. The Apostle Paul knew the dynamic of Jesus' words, you lack one thing. Materially, this young man lacked nothing. I would imagine relationally he didn't lack much. I'm sure he had many admirers. Because if he was a ruler, people were drawn to the power that he had. If he was wealthy, people were attracted to the status, the lifestyle. But deep down in the core of this man's being, there was something missing. And Jesus the living word puts his finger straight upon it. You lack one thing. And the Apostle Paul could echo these words. He says this, Philippians, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Not that I've already obtained all this, already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. The one thing I do. Paul could say, I've got Jesus. Everything else 
Yes, it can tag along, but it cannot take first place. Everything else can be blessed and received with thanksgiving, but it cannot grip my heart. I can't make an idol of it. I can't put it before God. Truth is, when Jesus says, give it all away, (laughs) you can neither earn enough or give away enough to merit eternal life. It's impossible to earn it or to do something to inherit it other than to receive by faith the free gift of God in Jesus. To share in the radical generosity of God. Who can be saved? (laughs) Humanly speaking, nobody. I can tick your attendance record for the next 30 years and it will make not one iota of difference. I can vouch for your character. I can verify your giving. Well, I can't, but the treasurer might. Do we really believe that Jesus alone is the source of eternal life? That forever fellowship with God is safe in Him? If your answer is yes, be careful because it demands radical and practical change. Perhaps in our attitude to wealth and possessions. As I was preparing this service, this sermon, I remembered a song that I realise now was was sung by George Beverly Shea and I probably could sing it in the same style. (laughs) (laughs) with a bit of tuning I'd rather have Jesus do you know it? than silver or gold I'd rather be his than have riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands I'd rather be led by his nail pierced hand I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. The refrain, than to be a king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And then the last verse, he's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. The Apostle Paul could say elsewhere in Philippians, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's just pause and reflect on Jesus' words again. 
Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through an eagle's eye than for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. That set the disciples back on their heels. Then who has any chance at all, they asked. Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. This morning, will you let God do it for you? Amen. noticed that um, we didn't use very many songs at the start of the service because Mark and I wanted to make sure there was plenty of opportunity for us to respond after we'd heard the word. So we're going to spend a few moments in silence and the idea there is to just allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us and tell us if there's anything in our lives that we're putting in front of God at the moment and where he may wish to ask us to change. But remember that it is God who works in us to change us, to become people that he's making us. And he never does too much at a time. And so the challenge to us is, when you feel that little poke and that prompt from the Holy Spirit, how will you respond? So spend some time in silence, and then we'll, um, you may choose to sit or you may choose to stand as we start um, our next section of worship with Just As I Am. <laughs> 